Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. During one of our tours to Israel several years ago, we visited an obscure site called Marisha. This is a battleground where King Asa called out to God for help in defeating an Ethiopian army that was twice his size. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 14. But the story became secondary to another one that took place that day, because when we got off the bus, one of the guys who was a farmer walked over to this field. When he did, he examined it and he called us all over there and he said, look at this. This is a field of wheat. Look at all the tares that are sown in with the wheat. Well, with such a great object lesson, our Bible study immediately took a switch to that parable as we read it from Matthew 13. Boy, did it change my understanding of what that parable means. As we turn today to the final part of Revelation chapter 14, there's another time when we go back to the story of the wheat and the tares, which will help us, I think, better understand that passage. Thanks for joining us today on Living Word Ministries. I'm your host, Debbie Blank. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. Jesus often used agricultural analogies, like how seeds of the gospel can fall on good or bad soil, and the great harvest of souls at the end of the age. In Revelation, we've seen a gracious God continue to sow seeds of the gospel in many extraordinary ways, even in the midst of the tribulation. He sent the two witnesses, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and the angel flying in the mid-heavens proclaiming the gospel to all the world. But now, in chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, the harvest is ripe. We see one like the Son of Man on a cloud with a sickle in his hand and angels proclaiming the harvest. The difference between the wheat and the tares is now clear, and the winepress of the wrath of God is ready for those souls who refuse to be saved. As we have walked through chapter 14, we have seen the faithful versus the faithless. We've talked about people, as you said, the 144,000 faithful servants, and then our faithful God. We then learned about faithless Babylon. We talked about those people who were faithless because they chose to take the mark of the beast and worship the Antichrist. We ended then in verse 13 last week talking about those who are blessed who die in the Lord from now on. As we finish this chapter, we again are going to contrast faithful versus faithless people, because that's really what this chapter is all about, as it focuses on an overview of the end three and a half years of the tribulation period. As you mentioned, this talks about reaping and sowing, which reminds me of Galatians 6, 7, which says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Clearly, this passage means that however we choose to live in life, we're going to enjoy the rewards of doing the right thing before the Lord, or we're going to suffer the consequences of our actions. That's the difference between sowing good things for the Lord and reaping good things or sowing bad decisions and reaping the consequences. As you mentioned also, Jesus often mentioned sowing and reaping to explain parables about the kingdom of heaven and about life in general. 
when he used agricultural analogies, it was because that was something that the people really understood and people throughout all generations can figure out because we've always had to farm, we've always had to reap and sow. And as you said, the person in your group that um, went over and said, here's the wheat and here are the tares, he could show you exactly what that means. And so it's very practical, but it also has very deep spiritual meaning. And he explained that in the parable of the wheat and tares from Matthew 13, 24 to 30. It's important for us to look at that parable now and then go into Revelation 14, because I think we'll understand Revelation 14 better. In Matthew 13, it says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. So we have three things here that we need to see. One is Jesus is using the parable to talk about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, as we've discussed before, is really the kingdom that we're living in right now as we either follow the Lord or we don't. It's also going to be the millennial kingdom. It's also going to be the eternal kingdom with God. So when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven now, he's talking about two different kinds of people. The people who sowed good seed and then the enemy who sowed the tares among the good seed. That's obviously Jesus would be the good and Satan would be the bad. People who follow Jesus would be the good seed. People who don't would be the tares. So you can look at it that way. He goes on to explain it by saying, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and do what with them? Bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. We understand from that that there's coming a time in the future at the end of the age when everybody is going to have consequences for what they have sown. It says here that one group of people will be gathered into the barn, into God's kingdom. The second group of people, however, are going to be burned up. They're the tares. They're the ones that are sown by the evil one. That lays the foundation as we're going to move into Revelation 14. When I think about the wheat and the tares, and I've never seen the tares. The tares are a type of weed. You've got the chance to see them with your own eyes. It makes me wonder why he was so careful to say, don't pull anything up. Even after he was able to identify that there were tares, the slaves in the field knew that there were tares and still said, don't pull them up yet because you might pull one out with the other. Sometimes there are believers in a church and they all look like they're believers, but some of them may be in that group where they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this in your name? And he'll say, go away, I never knew you. So in the same congregation of believers, there are people who are true believers and people who might be believers in name only and may have deceived themselves because they truly haven't given their lives to the Lord. They really haven't trusted Jesus for their salvation. Is it possible that some of those sitting in the congregation listening over the years might become true believers, and that's why you wouldn't pull them up yet? That's very possible. Another one is that God has given each one of us a free will. And if the terrors are taken out, if the evil's taken out, then there's no free will involved in our turning to God, because it's just God showing himself to be 
pure and holy on this world and everybody would walk with him. But he wants us to make that decision. Therefore, we have to see the difference in this world between good and evil, between Christ and the evil one. I tend to go along more with what you said. And one of the reasons is that he's saying at the end of the age, people are going to be held accountable for what they've sown. They're going to reap the benefits or the consequences. So with that, let's turn to Revelation 14, verse 14. These seven verses are power packed with judgment that's going to take place in the end times. Now remember, Revelation 14, while it talks about the faithful people versus the faithless, it's an overview of these people and what's going to happen to them in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. We've talked about a lot of things here, but now we're getting into the final judgment. It starts by saying, And I looked and behold a white cloud, And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sickle in his hand. We all know who looks like the son of man, and that would be Jesus, because Jesus' favorite title for himself was son of man. It's used over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. It's specifically mentioned mostly in the prophetic book of Ezekiel. But we want to turn to Daniel 7 because this explains to us who this person is. In Daniel 7, verse 13, it reads, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We see an example there, a prophecy there of what's going to happen at the end. What's going to happen is that the Son of Man is going to appear on a cloud. Well, we know from Acts chapter 1, if you read verses 9 to 11, that when Jesus ascended that day from the Mount of Olives, the angel said to the apostles, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come again in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So Jesus ascended into the clouds. When he returns, he's going to be sitting on the clouds. Here it says he has a golden crown on his head. This crown is a Stephanos crown. It's a victor's crown, one who has won the victory and won the prize and is recognized as the victor. It is not the kingly crown. We will not see Jesus wearing the kingly crown until Revelation 19. But here it says he has the victor. He has overcome sin. He has overcome death. And he has not only a crown on his head, but a golden crown. In the Old Testament, the crown that the high priest wore was a golden crown that said, holy to the Lord. And Jesus, we know from the book of Hebrews, is our high priest. So we can see him probably wearing that golden crown that says, holy to the Lord. And yet here he's also described as having a sharp sickle. Now, when we think of a sickle, we think of something that cuts, something that destroys, something that is swift and devastating. But is that what this means here? 
So you've gone over the different descriptions here of the one like a son of man, and we see from Daniel, that's a messianic appellation. When Jesus was on earth, it was the way he liked to refer to himself the most was son of man. It was him identifying with humanity because he came to save humanity. So we see the crown, the golden crown, and the sickle because he's the one that's going to reap the harvest. So all of those things point to Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, it doesn't say it's an angel. Angels are mentioned 22 times in the book of Revelation. They hold a very prominent place, but here it doesn't say an angel. Now we're going to see several other angels in the rest of this passage, but not this one. So that's why we believe it's Jesus. Verse 15 now says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. So this angel, it says, is coming out of the temple. That's where God dwells in heaven. This isn't the earthly temple. By the way, at this time, who's in the earthly temple? It's the Antichrist. But we see an angel coming out. He's crying out with a loud voice. That means to shriek or to entreat. In the book of Revelation, 12 times we see someone crying out. It's not always in pain. It's not always for evil to happen. It's oftentimes the believers or the angels in heaven who are crying out, not in disgust, not in pain, but in an announcement of what is going to happen. For example, Revelation 7:10. it says, and they cried out with a loud voice. And this is talking about the great multitude salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So they were crying out and rejoicing. When this angel is crying out, he's got a message to give to Jesus. He's not commanding him to do anything. Instead, he is passing along a message that it is time to reap the harvest. And it's like an announcement. And when you think in the court, like you watch movies where there's the king's court and someone makes a proclamation, it's loud. They want everyone to know. So that's what this is here. Jesus once said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So beseech the Lord of the harvest. So when we see a harvest, it's not always a negative reaping of bad things, of the tares, for example. It's also a reaping of the people who would believe. And that's what I think we see here. This is a unique passage that isn't often interpreted the same way by different people. But What I see is that this angel is making a proclamation with a loud voice to Jesus, and he is leading him, encouraging him to put in his sickle because the time is right. God has said it is time for Jesus to now come for his people. He is going to reap the harvest of those who have believed in him because we are discussing here the very end time when Jesus returns. We're really talking about Jesus taking away or protecting his people, his believers, while the other angels, as we're going to see, come and reap the harvest of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, Jesus, when he reaps this harvest, he's not whipping them out of the world because if he did, there would be nobody left on the earth to enter into the millennial kingdom. Instead, when I think he's reaping the harvest is he is protecting God's people and bringing them forward so they can reign with him. Now, some people might say, well, this is the rapture of the church. 
No, I don't see that because it doesn't match up with the other passages we've seen in Scripture. It simply means that those people who have come to know Jesus from the time of the rapture, the beginning of the tribulation period until now, he is going to protect. He is going to bring into his kingdom. He's going to be reigning in as soon as he returns. When we think of the gathering of the harvest, it's a good thing. It's a thing that's celebrated when you bring in the harvest. So that's what we're talking about in this particular part of it. When we talk about angels, we've had one angel come out and make a proclamation. Now we'll have a second angel. And then later on, there'll be another angel. So it says another angel, another angel, and another angel. There's a trio of angels. There had previously been a trio of angels. This is a different set of angels. So I think that's why they use the word another so many times. But we have another angel, which is the second one in this group, coming out of the temple. And he, too, has a sharp sickle. So we have one that made a proclamation and one that, like the Son of Man, also has a sharp sickle. I'm glad you made the distinction between the angels, because when it says in verse 15, another angel, that's not talking like Jesus is an angel. Right. It's just saying another of the many angels that have been mentioned and what they've been called to do. Well, as we look at verse 17, we see the second another angel. And that one says, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle like Jesus did, but this is different. And another angel, so we have that third another angel, the one who has power over fire came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, and that would be the second another angel, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Well, that's quite a story. Let's go back and look at the four figures. We have one like the son of man that we believe is Jesus. And then we have the first another angel who simply encourages Jesus as he comes out of the throne to go reap his harvest. Now we have the second another angel, and he's got the sharp sickle. And then we had a third another angel, and this one is the one who told the second another angel to go reap the harvest. I know it may sound a little confusing here, but God has a reason for using different angels for different purposes. It shows me that each angel has a purpose. Each one of us has a purpose that God gives us, a different purpose. It could have just said an angel or whatever God wanted to say in here, but he's making a distinction that even with angels who are different than we are, they have a purpose. And so we do too. And this one who has the sharp sickle is going to put in that sickle But he's going to gather the clusters from the vine of the earth whose grapes are ripe, and he's going to throw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. In Revelation 19, it explains that a little bit further, and it calls it the great winepress of the fierce wrath of God. If you recall, there's two words for wrath in the Greek, thumos and orge. In Revelation 19, when it says the great wrath of God, it's the thumos orge wrath of God. That means God's mental judgment on this world, as well as his pouring out his wrath upon the people for their unbelief. In this passage, it's very clear that the vines 
of the earth are not the same as the ones of the harvest mentioned in verse 15, because these are thrown into that great wine press. Let me go back and read Revelation 19, because it tells us when Jesus returns that this very thing we're reading about in Revelation 14 is going to happen. Verse 15 says, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now let's get a word picture here of a winepress. I think most of us, when we think of a winepress, think of Lucy and Ethel in I Love Lucy, where they were stomping grapes in a grape vat somewhere in Italy or somewhere. When you do that, you stomp on these grapes so that the juice from the grapes will pour out the side down into a vat below that can then be used for wine. When someone treads a wine press, they only do it with ripe grapes, ones that are thick and juicy that have come to fruition. That tells us here, since they're called ripe grapes, that these people have shown their complete antagonism towards God. They are full of blasphemous names. They are full of hatred towards God and love for the Antichrist. They are ripe with their own evil, and they are ready now to be judged. And so this sickle, these people are judged by God with his thumos wrath. The Son of Man reaps one way, and this another angel with a sharp sickle reaps another way. So we talked about a good harvest, and now this is um, going into detail to explain to us that this is something different. This is where we have the great wine press of God's wrath, and the trampling, the blood flowing, all of those things indicate judgment. So it seems to me there are two different types of harvesting at this point in time, which I think is indicated in the Matthew Wheat and Terrors parable where there are two different gatherings as well, gathering into the barn and gathering and bundling up to be burned, two different things. Exactly right. And what this is talking about again is the battle of Armageddon. It is the end when Jesus returns. We're not there yet. It's going to happen in three and a half years. So chapter 14 is just an overview of that. When we get to that passage, we'll talk more in depth about it. In Revelation, we've talked about all kinds of symbolism and certain things that we're supposed to take just straightforwardly as written and certain things that are symbolic. I am reading in that last verse, verse 20, when it says the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Could that possibly be anything but symbolic? Oh, I believe it's genuine. And the reason I do is because of the number of people that are going to be involved in the battle of Armageddon. It tells us in Revelation sixteen twelve, the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that make way to prepare for the kings of the east. And then it says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. There you have the unholy trinity. And it goes on to say in verse 14, they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the almighty. You're going to have millions of people that come up on the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that come up in Megiddo to fight this battle of God the Almighty. And they're going to be destroyed by God. So can you can imagine between the horses, between the people, the blood that cannot quickly be absorbed into the ground. 
And when it says 200 miles, if you know the topography of Israel, the valley of Armageddon is a valley and it pours into the Jordan Valley, which goes down the Jordan River Valley. And that also goes down in towards the area near Petra. So when you're talking about 200 miles, you're talking about from Armageddon, Megiddo, which is in the northern part of Israel, down into Edom, or certainly the far southern parts of Israel. Very possible that that blood could flow for that length and still be up to the horse's bridles, which is, you know, somewhere between two and four feet. When we have floods, the flood can be so devastating and it overflows in the rivers and maybe this blood will mix with the River Jordan and that will fill it up too. But floods devastate and floods grow to much higher than two to four feet. So when you have a flood of blood of people dying immediately, because it says in Revelation 19 that when Jesus comes back, he's going to kill everybody with the sword of his mouth and it's going to be immediate. So I believe that that's a genuine thing that happens. Let me go and read something from Joel chapter three in verses one and two, and then later in nine through 16, because that gives us an idea too of this kind of battle that's going to take place. The prophet reads, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, the valley of Jehoshaphat is on the east side of Jerusalem. And he says, then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. So God's going to judge the nations in this valley. He goes on to say in verse nine, proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Again, we see all those people coming. And gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, thy mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. We see right there a very symbolic understanding of what we read in Matthew 13 and then again in Revelation 14. I love how scripture comes together. Scripture verifies scripture in all areas. For now, when God is dealing with people, he blesses and honors those who are faithful When it comes to the wicked, there is a judgment. And the time is coming soon when that judgment's going to take place based on whether people have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ or they followed their own ways or followed the ways of the evil one. Jesus came first to save, it tells us in John 3. But when he comes again, he's coming to judge an evil, sinful world that did not accept his salvation. It's going to be a terrible time when that happens. Hebrews 10, 26 warns us, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which consumes the adversaries. So in Hebrews, we're told that that judgment is coming with fire. And then Hebrews 10, 31 concludes, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Will you fall into the hands of the living God and go through the fierce wrath of the God Almighty because you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Or will you turn to him today knowing that he loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you? Now is the time to turn to Jesus because this judgment that we talked about is coming soon. We want to see people reaped in Jesus Christ's harvest to spend eternity with him. We don't want to see people who are going into the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.